And then the finale, you're like, what is this? I don't get it. Things that start good and then slowly decline. Have you ever been in the middle of a four-hour movie on the Civil War and halfway through, you're like, wait, who's fighting? I'm lost. And four hours later, towards the end, you still don't know what the plot of the Civil War movie was about. It was just one of those things that just kind of fizzled halfway through. How things begin and how things end are important, right? Come out with a bang, you want to end with a good, solid conclusion. Don't worry, it wasn't full. Uh, There's a beginning and an ending, and in the middle, you want the middle to point to something. You want the middle of the story to take you along and keep you engaged in what's happening, because in the middle of all these is where we usually get lost, We lose sight of what's at the end. The Bible is one of those stories, and uh, some might believe it fizzles out in the middle. I think it gets better in the middle because it's it's a long book. In the beginning, we'll start there and we'll end in Revelation today. I hope you don't have any plans. (laughs) In the beginning, we see a garden. God makes everything. Uh, Scripture tells us the way it's written that there was nothing but stillness and void. And then God speaks in everything from clouds to volcanoes to valleys to water to frogs to fish. Everything comes forth in its order throughout the days. And at the end of it all, God looks at it and says, it's good. He creates humans, man and woman, in his likeness. And at the end of those, he he looks at them and says, it's good. What I've made is really, really, really good. I like it. It begins in a garden. He lays down a ground wool. All of these trees you can eat, but that one over there with that weird-looking fruit, don't touch it. Don't even go near it. You don't want to do it. And he lays down all these rules except for that one. The garden was a picture of something for us. There was a choice that we could make to go with it and, and obey in God's way of life, or there is a choice that we can make to go against it and break it. This was the beginning in the garden, uh, the Garden of Eden, which actually means the Garden of Perfection, paradise. In that place, there was divine communion between humans and the divine. There was divine communion between humans and nature. Everything was whole. It wasn't a wilderness. The picture we get of God in Genesis 1 is God as a gardener. This is how it all begins. He's cultivating. He's making things blossom. He's developing his community. The Garden of Eden is a a community garden. How many gardeners are here? You know the work that it takes to make things grow. I'm trying to plant flowers around our house, and it is not going well. Uh, I I have a brown dead thumb, I guess you can call. But but God, we see in Genesis 1, is a gardener. He's cultivating it, and he calls humanity us to come alongside him in mutuality because we're all on the same page. We're all with the same goal. And he says, your job, man and woman, is to work the ground. He says that in Genesis 2. Everything was set right. People, plants, animals got along. And now this is how everything begins. It begins in a garden. Fast forward a lot of pages and then you come to Revelations 21, and then in, in 20, Revelations 21, 21, because it matches, it says this, 
Then I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. There's something then that happens in this section that breaks everything. Because you see a creation and then you see a new creation. And then you continue reading in Revelation that God remains committed to his garden. He's sticking to it. He's replanting. God is striving towards something in Revelation. He's striving towards something new. He describes it as a place where his zillions and zillions of people will come and, and live with him as it was in the beginning. It's the fulfillment to the promise that was made to Abraham. In heaven, things are communal. They're not individualistic. It's a sign of the garden that was at the beginning. There's, a, there's cities that embody culture in towns in town squares. There's gardens and musics and uh, music and art. The new earth once again will be a community garden. And then Revelations 21:2 says that there, there'll be residents there that fulfill the role as the bridegroom of the lamb. And then there's a feast. And so what we begin to see is there's a garden at the beginning where there's mutuality and there's respect between all things. And then at the end, there's a garden with mutuality and respect between all things. God was with his people in the beginning. He came down in the cool of the day and walked with Adam and Eve. Humanity, there was a presence. And then God is with his people again in the end. We are bookended by gardens. But in the meantime... We live in a place where we don't necessarily see the fruits of a garden. We live between the gardens where we have things like thorns and thistles and flooded lands. We have things called meth. We have things uh, like police shootings, inequality. We have racial tensions. We have broken relationships. We have strained marriages. We are marked by pain and we feel the toil and sweat of those who are inflicted with injustice. We're surrounded by gardens, but in the midst of our lives, what do we feel? We feel that we're actually surrounded by a desert, or we're in a devastated garden. But the picture we get from God, the picture that we get throughout all scripture, is that God is not content leaving us sitting here in a devastated garden with thorns and thistles and meth issues and inequality and injustices. He's not content with this. And so this middle part of Scripture, the part that that we, we forget about, is all about God trying to do something for us. It's all about God trying to make the beginning and the end match up. It's all in the effort to get us back. The garden imagery is significant in Scripture. You have one in the beginning, you have one in the end, but then you have three more in the middle. You have the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus goes and he says before he dies, Lord, if there is any other way that I should do this, let it come. I, he's asking for the cup to be passed from him. There's the Garden of Gethsemane, and then there's the garden area where Jesus was buried and then rose. Those two gardens are significant. And then there's the garden that we see in Song of Solomon. Most of us don't look and think of that as a garden. But those three gardens in the middle of all of this 
point to the fact that God is doing what he can to restore and repair this broken world that we live in. The garden in Song of Solomon, we look at it and think it's just a book about sex and married people. It is more than that. A side note, that some of us who aren't married might look at this and go, Song of Solomon is a great book, but it's just for married people. So I'm not going to listen to it. That's not really the best thing for us to come to. There's a misconception that gets portrayed in our culture that says that if you're not married, you don't matter. That's a gross misconception, and it's dangerous. It's a dangerous misconception. It's easy to read into Song of Solomon and say, this doesn't fit to where I'm at. And it's impossible for me then to, to experience the fullness that Christ has for me because you may or may not be married. And so you think this doesn't apply to you. Then our culture compounds this and says, especially our Christian culture, that if you're not married, then you shouldn't then you don't really count. And we start to think that you're weird because you're single, and that's not true either. We don't think you're strange. It's fine to be single. There's our, those are dangerous misconceptions. There is nothing wrong with you if you happen to be single. That's fine. You have a voice. You have gifts. You have desires. You have value. Just because you're not married doesn't mean that you don't have any of those in our congregation. We, it's, there's nothing wrong with the desire to be married. There's nothing wrong with that. However, if you think that a spouse is going to complete you, spouses make lousy gods. Ask Carrie. I'm a terrible one. There is... Uh, a, a thing that we go around it, and I had it until I was in my early 30s, that a spouse would complete me, and that is not true. The spouse only shows you areas where you're incomplete. We think that, as, uh, we think that until we're married, that we don't have value, and we can't learn anything from Song of Solomon, but Song of Solomon shows us more about our relationships than we think, and it's not just married relationships. For married folk, we look at this and there's a challenge for us in here. The challenge for us is to remember that our spouses aren't our gods and we need to actually pay attention to our marriage. But there's also a challenge in our culture to care for, welcome, love on those people who happen not to be married. Paul says that if you can avoid marriage, do it. There's a call to not being married. It's a hard call. And as those who are married, to come alongside those people who are not and show them the love so that this thing called loneliness doesn't happen is a call for all of us as married people. As we see in Song of Solomon, I'm going to try and make that whole thing fit. As we see in Song of Solomon, we see relationships at the center we see relationships as the center of married relationships. We see relationships at the center between friends and non-married relationships. And at the core of them are two traits that I think if we embody these two traits will enable us to live between these two gardens that we find ourselves. 
If we embody these two traits, it makes this land of thorns and thistles actually make sense. They're very practical traits, very easy to do, yet we have a hard time doing them. The first trait that we see in Song of Solomon 7 uh, that we should follow in order to have a healthy relationship is the trait of affirmation. In Song of Solomon 7, listen to what uh, this man says to his wife. How beautiful are your sandaled feet. Your gracious legs are like jewels. Your navel is a rounded goblet. That's strange. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies, not gluten-free. So, you know, this was before the wheat belly craze. Your neck is an ivory tower. Your eyes are like pools of Heshbon. Your nose is the tower of Lebanon. (laughs) You got a big nose. I like big noses. That's what he's saying. Your head is, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like a royal tapestry. The king is held captive in its tresses. From feet to head, what we see is this person complimenting his spouse, going into detail on every single part of her body and saying how good she is. He's affirming her. There's an affirmation taking place. And then we get to verse 6. How beautiful are, how beautiful are and how pleasing, my love, with all your delights. There's a holy affirmation here that, that lowers the defenses that, that this woman has. It's more than just flattery. He's telling the truth about her. Affirmation points towards the truth in the other person that gets torn down in this land of thistles and thorns. Think about it. It's very easy to think through our lives and think through the last criticism that we've heard. You're not good enough. You don't look like this person on the magazine. Your, your, your definition of perfection doesn't match with someone else's definition of perfection. You eat the wrong foods at the wrong times. Uh, You should move more. You're not the best parent. You're a mediocre spouse. You're a terrible friend. These are things that not necessarily you hear from the outside, but these are things that I hear on the inside. This is the voice of this thorned and thistled world coming through us. We are surrounded by criticism. You hear it in your brain every morning. Now, it's harder to think of the last compliment that you received. Why? Because we're so easily criticized. What's the last compliment you received? This morning, I had to think about this. It was Carrie telling me that this shirt looked good, and it was enough. Okay, I can leave the house now. Was she right or she was just trying to get me out of her way? I don't know. I don't care. I left. That's the last compliment. It's harder to think of compliments than it is criticisms. We live in a critical culture. I have a a, a good friend. He's a pastor at this church in Chicago. He's uh, uh, one of the 
guys who came alongside me when I was going through this weird, what do I do with my life? Do I pursue uh, something over here or do I go back towards the church? And he came alongside of me and he spoke affirming words and said, you don't belong in video and graphics. You belong in the church. You're gifted. Do it. Affirmations changed the course of my life. A couple weeks ago, he was here. He was speaking at something, and he came in, and we were, I showed him around. It was the first time he'd been uh, in Seattle, and so he wanted to see this place. He wanted to see where we were meeting, and so we came here. Uh, we, he walked through it. We drove through town. I was telling him about some of the things you're all doing and, and what God is doing through us as a church. At the end of the night, I'm dropping him off at his hotel, and he says, God is doing amazing things amongst your community affirmation. In the middle of a pretty crappy week, there was affirmation, and it carries me on. What's the last affirmation that you had? When's the last time you gave someone affirmation? Being affirmed changes everything about you. Here in Song of Solomon, the man affirms this woman. This woman has been treated like property, all of her life, her brothers in chapter 2 told her to go work because she messed up. Something happened to her, and she feels like she's lower than anything else. What does he do? He comes and he affirms her, says, you are like the rose amongst thorns. You are like a lily in the valley. He affirms her, and that affirmation speaks to her strength. In the wasteland of constant criticism, this man embodies affirmation and it changes this woman's life. The reality is everybody, including your spouse, including your friends, including yourself, your children, your family members, are all asking the same question that this woman was asking in Song of Solomon saying, who am I? And the voices that we constantly hear are voices that say you're not good enough. And in order for us to live into the longing of this new creation coming, we as a community need to embody this thing of affirmation and begin speaking truth into people's lives. Who are they? They're good. They're beautiful. They're strong. Affirmation is easy. It's the easiest thing you can do, and it costs you absolutely nothing. But it means the world to somebody else. Here's what James says, and this is a, a transla translation different than what we normally hear it in. James says this, Have you ever seen a massive ship sailing effortlessly across the water? Despite its immense size and the fact that it's propelled by mighty winds, a small rudder directs the ship in any direction the pilot chooses. It's just the same with your tongues. It's a small muscle capable of marvelous undertakings. It's Father's Day, so here's a dad story. One of the most simple things my dad ever did was he would pull us aside, and whether it be a small look, a pat on the back, uh, uh, just a, a, a literal attaboy sometimes, there was never a moment where I doubted if my dad thought of me and said he was proud of me. Even the moment when he was holding my son on what would end up being his deathbed, he looked at Judah, who was a month old, and said, I'm proud of this little boy. I'm proud of you. Small things, affirmations, telling us that he loved us. 
the littlest things can change everything about another person. Affirmations change lives. Jesus affirmed more than he ever condemned. Zacchaeus in Luke 19 was described as a short person. Jesus comes walking into town. Zacchaeus is hiding in a tree so that he can see. The first thing Jesus says isn't, hey, shorty, get down. That's not what Jesus says to him. The first thing Jesus says is, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner. What are you cooking? The people around him said, what is he doing dining with sinners? But to Jesus, the affirmation of Zacchaeus changed Zacchaeus' life. At the end of this story, Zacchaeus says this, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I pay it back four times the amount. The affirmation of Zacchaeus to say, I'm coming to your house for dinner. When you ate with somebody in that culture was you saying, I affirm your humanity. I affirm who you are as a person. I am binding myself to you. And the simple act of Jesus breaking bread with somebody was a way of affirming that Zacchaeus actually existed. He had thoughts, feelings, and emotions. He was affirming the very basic humanness of this person, and it changed his life. Jesus was sitting at a well one day. He was thirsty. He was in Samaria. And this woman comes walking up to him. Jesus knew everything about this woman. She was hiding. She was shameful. She didn't want to make eye contact with anybody in her town. Yet she comes up and the first thing Jesus says to her was, yeah, you're you're divorced five times. No. Jesus says to her, can I have a drink too? Can you pour me some water? Jesus affirmed this woman by asking her for a drink. The simplest thing that Jesus could have done and he does it. And then the conversation grows. He affirms in her that she's searching for something. She's searching for life. She's searching for acceptance. And Jesus says, you're not going to find it over here. You will only find what you're looking for if you follow me. I'll give you the drink that you're expecting. Affirming her search. The temptation that we all face is to look at somebody who's searching for something and say, you're wrong and you're evil because you're searching for this. Instead of saying, I know what you're looking for. You're looking for the peace that can only come from finding Christ. Instead of saying that, we say you don't belong and your search is bad. What would happen if we started affirming people instead of condemning people? world will be changed. That day, John 4, her whole neighborhood was changed. She goes back and she says, come see the person who told everything about me. And people came and Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plenty. Now get out there and do it. All because he affirmed. God affirms you. He says he sees you dressed in white, pure. He sees you as holy He sees you as he sees Jesus, and he calls you beautiful. Today, how are you affirming others? How are you going to affirm the people in your life? What would be different if you changed your posture around them? How are you speaking hope into the world?
We live in a place of criticism. We live in a garden that has been devastated by criticism, and that's all we hear. What would it look like for you to affirm somebody? Simplest thing that can change their world. The other trait that we find in Song of Solomon is the trait of mutuality. In, uh, in chapter 7, verse 10, here's what it says. The woman is speaking here. The man goes through this long list affirming her. And the, in verse 10, she says this back. I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. That word desire is a fun Hebrew word. You ready to say it? Tasuka. Tasuka. Everybody else now. Tasuka. Okay. A couple more days and you all know Hebrew. It'll be awesome. It, it means this. A strong craving for something, whether it be a man for a woman, a woman for a man, or an animal to devour some other animal. Strong words. The word tesuka shows up only three times in the entire Old Testament. It shows up twice in Genesis and then here in Song of Solomon. It shows up in Genesis 4 when, at, when Cain is about to go kill his brother. Uh, there's a warning and it says to Cain, be careful there's an animal at your, at your door, and it is, sin is at your door, crouching, and its desire is for you. The second time it shows up in Genesis is at the end of everything. When the fall happens and they're kicked out of the garden, the word desire shows up. God comes and he says, you weren't supposed to eat of that tree, but now there's going to be consequences. The first consequence is that there's death. The second consequence is that the serpent will now crawl on its belly, which I'm okay with. I don't want to see a 50-foot anaconda walking around on legs. I'm okay with a serpent on its belly. The, second, the third one was man will work not out of joy, but out of the sweat and toil. And the last one is God said to the woman, I will increase your pains of childbirth. Your desire, your tesuka, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is one of those verses that we have taken and assigned to it a bunch of gender roles. And we elevate the men over woman and say that one is subject to the other. The problem is this. That was never God's intention. This whole curse is a result of sin. The whole thing of desiring, the whole thing of this hierarchy was never found in the garden. The original desire was that for men and women to be together, mutual, bearing the image of God. The desire in Genesis was about power and dominance. It's a result of sin. And the desire that we see here in Song of Solomon is a reversal of that curse. In Song of Solomon, in, or in Genesis, we're told that it's the woman who desires. But now in Song of Solomon, what does the woman say? My beloved is mine, and he is desiring me. The man is tasukain, if we want to say it that way. The woman. It now has a positive connotation. It brings to it this idea of what things could be in the end. It's mutuality, it's respect, it's self-giving love and sacrifice. And look how it, how it plays out. The woman's still talking here. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the village. Let us 
go into the vineyards and see if the vines have budded, if the blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. If you're unclear, she's talking about sex. Uh, she's, she's saying this is now an us thing. This in the middle of a patriarchal world where the woman has no say and no power, we see a woman who is actually equal with a man. She's in as much control as he is. Here the woman gives up the kind of desire that comes from the fall. She sets aside the desire for control, and the man sets aside a desire for control. And in fact, it's a desire and love that comes from surrender. It's a love that comes from surrender to the relationship because in it is a safety of trust and mutuality. In doing so, she rejects the curse that's on us all. So what does this all mean? Yeah, desire to suka. What it means is that we have a kind of love here and we should embody the kind of love that reflects a divine love. We should embody the kind of love that we see in the end garden, not the kind of love that we see in the middle of the wasteland. We live in a culture that says, I will do to you if you give back to what I want. We live in a, a, a we, we see love embodied in what I can get from somebody instead of what we can do for somebody. She's embodying here a self-sacrificing love that puts motives on the table and says, this is not why I'm doing this. The love that she's displaying is the type of love that God shows us. It's the type of love that we see portrayed in Leviticus. I will walk among you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's a mutual love. It's the love that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. He opens it up and says, here's the example to follow. Dearly love, follow God's example. Walk in the way of love, just as God loved you and gave himself up as a fragrant sacrifice. And then he shows us what it should look like. Among you, there should not be a hint of immorality or any kind of impurity or any kind of greed because it is impossible for and impo- it is improper for God's holy people to be like this those things of greed and immorality and selfishness don't embody the signs of mutuality that belong in either garden those aren't the way of self-sacrifice And then we see again, neither should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which is out of of place, but rather you should have thanksgiving. And then it's the greatest verse for Father's Day, but we need to figure out what it means first. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We want to jump quickly to 22 as, as our society where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. We want to point to that and go, I'm in control. But we forget what's really happening in the lead up to this. It's submitting to one another. It's putting the other person just as high as you are. There's no hierarchy. There's no controlling. There's self-sacrificial submission. Wives, submit to your husbands as you would to the Lord. This comes because we first submitted to each other. Now Paul is chasing it down. And then husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Mutuality 
that we should embody doesn't mean that we can use your spouse or anybody else for your desires at the cost of their freedom, at the cost of their dignity, at the cost of them being whole. Because if they're not whole, neither are you. If the people in your relationships are feeling like they're being used, they're not being whole, and you do not have mutuality, you are only whole to the extent that the people you are in relationship with are whole themselves. If you are one, then they are one, and then you all can be one. That's mutuality. Our culture teaches us a different way. Our culture teaches us that we should use rather than to serve, but the calling that we have in the middle of this wasteland is to embody something better, to embody something where you lay your motives down. And in so doing, we embody that same love that Christ had for us, where he says, greatest love that no man has, that they put down their life for those around them. We live between these two gardens and the only way we don't lose sight of where we're going and what God is doing is by embodying some of these little attributes that we see in Song of Solomon. Affirmation and mutuality, seeking the better for the other person. How would that change the story that we find ourselves in? How would seeking the other person first fix some of the probable injustices that we see? How would seeking the betterment of people that we come across, not so they can be owing to us, but so that we can put them in front of us? We live between two gardens, but we want to point to the garden that is to come, to the idea that God is putting everything back together. And it's no coincidence that the final focus of this for Paul is that he starts under your own roof how you treat your family members, how you treat your friends, how you treat your spouses. That points to something greater than anything else because then you become a light that there's hope coming, that there is not life stuck in the middle of the thorns and thistles. We live between two gardens, but we long to embody and put flesh on the garden that is to come. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you haven't left us here, that you're taking us somewhere, that there's hope in the middle of the thorns, that there's hope in the middle of the thistles. And Lord, we thank you for the examples of these gardens where you laid yourself down out of love and sacrifice. And you showed us what it looks like to embody mutuality. Lord, you affirm us You tell us that we are your own. You tell us that we are your children. You tell us that you loved us so much to walk with us. Lord, may we as a community embody these traits, affirming and self-sacrifice. And may may people around us see that you are good because of it. And it's your name we pray.